Welcome to the third season of Better News, a series of special podcasts It's All Journalism is producing in partnership with the American Press Institute. I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Better News offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. The effort is fueled by API and the Knight Lenfest Local News Transformation Fund. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight some of the useful research API has published as part of its Better News initiative. Like many newspapers across the country, the Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, saw a significant disruption to its business model since the 2007-2008 recession. Among other things, the newspaper saw most of the local advertising spending going to Facebook, Google, and others. Autumn Phillips is the editor of the Post and Courier. She recently wrote up a report for API's Better News initiative about how the newspaper was able to raise more than $1 million through fundraising. Autumn, welcome to the Better News Podcast. Thank you. So, you know, usually when I start these interviews off, I like to find out, you know, a little bit about people's background. You know, how did you get involved in journalism? You know, how did you end up at the uh, Post and Courier in Charleston? Sure. So I've been uh, full-time in newsrooms for about 20 years. My first real full-time daily reporting job was at the Steamboat Pilot in Today uh, in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. You know, I, I look back on my life and think about the influences, especially my family, who loves politics, loves talking about politics. It's basically what we talk about. Um, and when I was a kid, my dad would always, he would find an article, you know, in a news magazine or in the paper, and he would hand it to me and tell me to go read it and then come back and discuss and tell him the things that I agreed or disagreed and tell him about what I read. You know, being introduced to journalism in that way at a very young age was formative. Anyway, and now it's my my whole life. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to stop you there. I mean, it's pretty neat because he's, he was teaching you critical thinking. Yes. Which is an essential tool for journalists. Anyway, I interrupted you. Please continue. So, you know, I was in my late 20s, a reporter at the Steamboat Pilot in Today in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. And I get called into the office of the publisher. She said, we think you would be good at running a newspaper. Do you want to try it? And they sent me to one of their newspapers in Payson, Arizona. And that was my first editor job. And I've been running newsrooms ever since. I've gotten a chance to be the editor in papers in Colorado, in Idaho, in Illinois, Iowa, Texas, and now in South Carolina. I ended up at the Post and Courier. I saw an ad. I wasn't even looking for a job, but I saw an ad that said something like, do you want to be part of a newsroom that's growing, not cutting? And that was such a compelling thing. You know, for so long, we had been using the phrase managing the decline or doing more with less. And that idea that I could come work at a place that was investing in the newsroom and growing, I I couldn't stop thinking about it. (laughs) So yeah, sent an email and here I am. That's a pretty lucky circumstance and an opportunity definitely that that you want to take advantage of. Tell me about the Post and Courier. You know, what's its role in the community? How do people see the the paper? This is a really special publication. It was founded in 1803. It is the oldest newspaper in the South and one of the oldest continually published newspapers in the United States. It is family owned. It's been owned by the same family 
1895. And, you know, they see ownership of this paper really as a civic responsibility. You know, the, the modern day Post and Courier, in the last couple of years, we've really focused on expanding our reach. For the longest time, we've been focused on Charleston and what's called the Low Country, the three county area around Charleston. And over the last couple of years, we've really started to see an opportunity to go statewide, partly because people watching what we're doing here in Charleston have reached out to us and asked us to be in their communities. So we have newsrooms now in Columbia, which is the capital city of South Carolina, in Greenville, a brand new one that we opened this year in Spartanburg, and a newsroom in Myrtle Beach. Let me explore that for a little bit. Yeah, sure. So when you say have, have newsrooms in these different sections, I mean, are you, are you publishing different editions of the paper for each of those areas or and maybe even sharing a website or do they have like a shared website or a individual website? Yeah, well, they have individual web pages on our site. So if you go to postandcourier.com and click on the hamburger, you'll see all of the regions. We publish their content you know, the content that has statewide appeal in the Charleston print edition, the one that comes out that is distributed in the three county area. We have a weekly print edition in Columbia, a weekly print edition in the Myrtle Beach area, and then Greenville Spartanburg newsrooms are digital only. It's a really interesting model. So you're here today, you know, I, I kind of alluded to it in the introduction that, you know, coming out of the recession, the Post and Courier saw a sort of revenue decline like many large newspapers did. And rather than go out of business, they figured out a way to sort of continue the paper. So yeah. tell me about the plan that was put together, the strategy about how they're going to become sustainable. So the first piece of this was really to look at digital subscriptions and the opportunities that are there for us. We modeled it out, you know, five years how can we pay for our newsroom through digital subscriptions? How many do we need to have? And what do we need each of those subscribers to be paying? And as we work toward that number, growing and growing, we're at 23,000 digital subscriptions right now. When I first got here, you know, we were closer to 1,200. So just focusing on the kind of news that people are willing to pay for, you know, in-depth, great storytelling, unique content that people are willing to you know, subscribe for, focusing on that has been a huge stabilizer for our business. But there's this other level of journalism that we do. At the Post and Courier, we have a six-person projects team. We have made investigative journalism project work a cornerstone of what we do. But that kind of work is expensive. Two years ago, in 2018, we published a project called Minimally Adequate, which was all about problems with the public education system in South Carolina and looking at solutions. And that project took us 10 months, five reporters publishing a series of stories in one week. But that kind of dedication, that doesn't really get covered by a digital subscription. So that kind of work, we realized we needed to add another layer to our, our revenue model. And that's how we started looking at fundraising. So you're saying that you're blending, you know, the regular coverage that, you know, your audience wants to get because, mm -hmm. you know, covering the local, you know, schools and local governments and all the other issues that a local journalism tackles. But on top of that, you put a layer of investigative reporting. Yeah. First, you know, how big a team is this? So it's six people, one in Columbia uh, and the rest here in Charleston. 
Okay. You know, you mentioned the the first project being the education. You know, what other projects have they tackled and, and how long do each of these projects usually take? Some of the big projects we've done, you know, a couple of years ago, we, we looked at small town sheriffs and some of the corruption that lies in those offices when nobody's watching. We did a big project two years ago, or 2019, looking at the prison system. We broke down a minute by minute takeout of what happened during a prison riot and what the systemic issues were that allowed that to happen, multiple deaths. This year, two weeks ago, we published a story about Greenland. We sent a reporter and a photographer to Greenland to look at the melting glaciers there and how climate change effects on Greenland are changing our quality of life here in Charleston. It's pretty fascinating that you went that far afield for a story, a big international story that obviously is going to have an impact locally as well. So, you know, you've got all this stuff mixed together, the the good local content and Mm -hmm. this deep investigative reporting. How does this turn into a fundraiser? So we joined a class in the fall of 2020. This was an inaugural class, a local media association invited 16 newspapers from around the country, including us, to take this class. They mentored us for six months, believing that philanthropy really is going to become a cornerstone of journalism. They taught us how to put together a campaign, how to mind map through who your sources of funding could be, and how to ask for money. We're journalists. We've never had to do that before. You know, how do you get your guts up and how do you know what you have to offer and how do you know how much to ask for? And they taught us all those things. In those first months, we, we just put a donate button on our website and did some email messaging, did some messaging on the front page of our paper. And we raised in that first month, really focusing on it, I think it was about $40,000, which felt, you know, exciting to us, but everyone felt like there was more opportunity for us if we just tried again. So we decide to launch in the middle of February, a campaign called, you know, $100,000 in 100 days. And to us, that seemed like a really big ask. 100 days seemed really short. We were nervous about putting it out there that that's what we wanted to raise, because what if we weren't able to do it? And then we made the move that changed everything for us. We were already in the middle of about to publish a project called Uncovered. It's a year-long project, and honestly, it's going to continue for years to come, where we were looking at corruption in news deserts. We were looking at small towns where the newspapers had either gotten to the point where, you know, their staffing was to the point where they just really couldn't cover these big investigations or where there just weren't any newspapers anymore. We partnered with 17 community newspapers around the state, and we used our resources and their local knowledge, and we started publishing these stories about, you know, corruption and misuse of taxpayer dollars and abuse of power in these places where nobody's been watching. We decided on the day that we launched that project, Uncovered, that first story cost us $38,000 to produce. The day we published that first story, 
we also launched our $100,000 in a 100 days campaign. And doing those two things at the same time, we didn't understand until the day we did it, how powerful that was to our readers and to potential donors. They saw value in that project. And week after week after week, we've published these stories, these deep investigations, uncovering things all over the state. It's inspiring, one, to us as journalists and across the state, to readers, feeling like that we're doing the work, that the watchdog work that a newspaper needs to be doing. And it translated into donations. We hit that mark of $100,000 within two weeks. And all of a sudden, 100 days seemed really long. Uh, you know, <laughs> you know, and then we just kept saying, okay, $100,000. How about, you know, we try to raise this, how much, you know, and that number kept getting bigger and readers kept matching it. And by the end of that campaign, and since then, we've ra- been able to raise $500,000 to pay for our investigative team, really by showing people the value of our journalism. Wow. So you, you just mentioned $500,000 and in the intro, I, you know, I mentioned, you know, that you, the campaign had won a million dollars and that was sort of based on something I'd read about what you were doing in the, the better news report. So tell me, is this, you know, is the million dollars, was that what you were able to raise? Yeah. So the year's fundraising has been broken up into two parts. One, this $500,000 we raised for investigative reporting. And, you know, when we started looking at our mission and the things that we could accomplish and the things that our readers want, education reporting is essential. So I mentioned earlier that in 2018, we did a project called Minimally Adequate, where we spent the majority of a year, 10 months, looking into the public education system in South Carolina and really highlighted the need for reform in the public education system in South Carolina. But here we are years later and nothing has really happened. So we felt a responsibility to revisit that issue and revisit in a steady drumbeat way over the next few years until we see something change. And we went to several people. We sat one-on-one with people that we know have capacity and who are passionate about education. And we pitched the concept of an education lab, which you've seen many people across the country, especially the Seattle Times famously launching these, these education labs. And we asked for funding for four positions for three years to focus on nothing but the need for reform in public education in South Carolina. And people stepped up again. These were individuals and foundations. And we have that lab funded. We launched it September 1 to the tune of about $660,000 over the course of three years. And what I liked about that is, again, you know, very smart decisions you're making because, you know, obviously, as you said, you, you had this investigative journalism project that was generating interest in fundraising, but then, you know, it allowed you to expand, you know, some essential reporting in the other parts of the newsroom. Again, like I said, these are, these are such great ideas. That's what we learned is that if you show your value, if you're offering something that people need and you share honestly and openly how expensive it is, people will help out. So Uncovered, like I said, all year long, we've been doing this project once a week for quite a while, every other week, still doing uh, several stories. We have, and we have a backlog of news tips 
that we've gotten from uh, around the state. So this project will continue. It's great because not only is it getting you revenue for the paper to support, it allows you to expand the coverage, you know, the the investigative coverage, which has such great value and, you know, that people are attracted to and will support you for. That's really impressive. Sorry to interrupt. So every story that we've published and uncovered, we have shared how much it cost us to produce that story in staff time, in FOIA requests, which is a huge expense, in travel, that kind of thing. We've just been very transparent. And I think that that's helped people understand just how expensive journalism can be. You know, I say this to a lot of people that I talk to that we need to be explaining what we're doing better and more often, because I think a lot of this, you know, the stuff out there about, you know, not trusting the news or thinking that journalists are working against their communities for whatever Mm -hmm. diabolical means. In actuality, a lot of that is just because people don't understand why we, we do certain things and what the journalism process is. It's interesting because when, when I first heard about this, you know, it was described as fundraising. I was kind of like, well, okay, does this mean that they're going for grants? Does this mean that they're going to big corporations? But this is all from the bottom up. This is from your readers. It is a mix. So mm-hmm. that $500,000 that I described, it was entirely from readers. We had a total, uh, last time I looked, we had 1,600 people who have donated. The smallest donation was $10. And the largest donation was 150000 Wow! from one individual. And then we've also been writing grants. So the Greenland Project, that was funded in three ways. We got a grant from the Pulitzer Foundation. They support so much journalism, and they've helped us a few times. The Fund for Investigative Journalism also pitched in money for that project. And then we shored it up with money from our readers. So it was that total cost, uh, that story, the total cost of $20,000. You know, you've done this project, it's successful, you know, you achieved the the simple goal that you sent, mm-hmm. that you've given yourself so much time to do very quickly. Is there anything you would have done differently, you know, knowing kind of what you know now about how the project sort of panned out? Well, one, I would be more ambitious. Like I said, we were really <laughs> nervous and yeah, we were nervous to ask, but once we understood the value of our work, that readers see value in it, we stopped being afraid to ask. And in fact, the cool thing that came out of it is a lot more engagement. You start to hear from readers a lot more, you know, as they donate, they're sending us comments about what they're enjoying and what they, you know, cheering us on. It kind of took down the fourth wall a little bit in a positive way. And that's just a great benefit, you know, just a bonus on top of everything else you're doing. What advice would you give to a a news outlet that was in the same position that the Post-Courier was? A few things. One, you should take advantage of the class that LMA has been offering. I know that they're signing up a new cohort now. I know that it was the first one was such a success that they'll, they'll continue the program into the future. It's six months of mentorship you know, both in a group setting where you get to offer each other advice, in a class setting where they're running you through a curriculum, and then you get these one-on-one coaching sessions where you can admit where you're struggling and get help and ideas. And then, of course, that class ends and that cohort doesn't go away. We're still in communication with each other and offering each other advice and cheering each other on. 
Anyway, I can't recommend that class highly enough. What other advice would you give to people who might want to do what the Post Courier did? Staff for it. I can't exaggerate. It really is a lot of work because you're, you're designing campaigns, you're putting out, you know, emails, newsletters, you're planning virtual events, in-person events, and you're doing a lot of one-on-one meetings with potential donors. That takes staff time and you can't put it on people to do in this, you know, in the side. So we did staff up. We ended up giving the job of director of development to somebody who was already on staff who has that kind of personality that's good at you know, going out and about and, and sitting across the table from somebody and talking to them about donating. We have somebody who is our donor engagement specialist. She was already working in the circulation department, the subscriber engagement specialist, and she does you know, really thoughtful email campaigns. She's always designing these email journeys to bring in new donations and to thank our current donors. And then myself to have buy-in in the newsroom, because really what you're, in order to raise money, it's, it really is about presenting the value of your product and you need the newsroom buy-in. So buy-in from multiple departments, but just not underestimating the time it's going to take. And if it's important to your business model, you know, staff for it. Considering the crisis that newsrooms have been in for the last, you know, 10 to 15 years, and you even said it at the beginning where you were at papers where it was like, we're going to do more with less. You know, and that's a recipe for failure in many different ways. You know, here it's like, okay, we're going to do this. We're committing to do this, but we need to sort of put that investment in ourselves. Otherwise, you know, what's the product that we're really selling? We're just selling the same thing that's sort of inching along. So when you mentioned buy-in, yeah, what does it mean in the newsroom? I mean, obviously the, the investigative reporting team, you know, they see immediate value in that this is going to pay for their their salaries and their expenses. How difficult was it to get buy-in from the rest of the newsroom? You know, journalists value transparency and they value the opportunity to ask questions. And so if you're going to launch this kind of a, a campaign or shift your your revenue model in this way, I think it's really important. Internal communication is just as important as external communication. So whenever we did, you know, our monthly standups or anytime anybody wanted to ask about it, we were really transparent about what we were doing, how the money was going to be used, how it played out into our long-term strategy. I think that that's something that Post and Courier has always been good at. We know what our strategy is. We communicate it daily. You know, we're very transparent about what our strategy is and where we're headed so that everybody can be in alignment. I've been talking to Autumn Phillips, editor of The Post and Courier in Charleston, South Carolina, about how the newspaper was able to raise $1 million in fundraising. Autumn, thanks for being on the Better News Podcast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Better News, a co-production of the American Press Institute and It's All Journalism. API's Better News Initiative offers strategies and case studies to help transform newsrooms. You can find out more about the Better News Initiative and this podcast at betternews.org.